we pick up where we left off in our last session. We had looked at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, and the wonderful encouragement that comes to us by what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. For Christ also died for sins once for all the just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God. Peter encourages these suffering saints and us by reminding us of the incredible encouragement we find in the suffering of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for us on the cross. But what he did on the cross did not remain silent. Peter goes on to remind us there is incredible encouragement by the proclamation of this conquest. We pick up in the latter part of verse 18, and then we're going to go all the way through verse 22. I, I just want to lay the foundation for us as we walk through these incredible truths together. First uh, Peter 3, 18. Uh, I'll go ahead and, and read 18 all the way through uh, so that we get the flavor and the feel of what Peter is trying to say. But we've covered the first part of verse 18. For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh. That's where we'll pick up this session. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. We come to what many commentators believe is the most difficult passage in all of the Bible. In fact, the great church father Martin Luther wrote of this passage, quote, This is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle means. <laughs> in the latter part of verse 18, Peter tells us Jesus died in the flesh, but was made alive in the spirit. And those phrases, having been put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit, on the surface appear to stand in stark contrast to one another. Some interpreters suggest the phrase made alive in the spirit is a reference to the resurrection. But on the dawn of the third day, it was not simply the spirit of Jesus that was raised from the dead, but the flesh as well. As we have said over and over, context is the key. In verse 18, Peter makes reference to the death of Jesus Christ. In verse 21, Peter makes reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in verse 22, Peter makes reference to the ascension of Jesus Christ. So textually, it is clear 
that wherever Jesus went in the Spirit, he made that journey somewhere between his death and his resurrection. But I want to, to just pause a moment and interject at this point. We must be careful that we do not become so consumed with the complexities of this difficult passage that we lose sight of the purpose behind this difficult passage. Remember, Peter is encouraging saints in the midst of suffering. So whatever one's view of this passage, it must be understood within the goal of encouraging the saints. This text confronts us with two complex questions. Question number one, what did Jesus proclaim? And question two, to whom did he proclaim it? Now, we cannot separate these two questions because the answer to one gives us insight into the other. So look back at the passage. During the span of separation, we are told by Peter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that Jesus made a proclamation of conquest. Look in verse 19 in which also he went and made proclamation. What did Jesus proclaim? Did he proclaim the gospel? The word Peter uses for proclaim is the Greek word keruso, and it means to herald, to announce, to proclaim. The word is used elsewhere in the New Testament as a reference to the preaching or the proclaiming of the gospel. However, when Peter discusses the proclamation of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel in both of his letters, he always, 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 always uses the word euangelizo, the most common word for the gospel in the New Testament. So if we're to maintain consistency within the letter, we must acknowledge that here Peter had a different kind of proclamation in mind. Now, now think about this sensically. If everywhere throughout both of Peter's letters he uses the word euangelizo for the gospel, would he say throughout his letters, euangelizo, 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 and then all of a sudden in this passage say, well, I've got bored using euangelizo. I'll use a different word. I think not. The fact that Peter uses the word keruso Instead of euangelizo, where he, which is the word he uses every other place for the gospel in his two letters, indicates to us that he had a different kind of proclamation in mind. So what was that proclamation? When a Roman general had won a victory, 
he would have a runner go ahead of him. And that runner would proclaim Caruso victory. Victory. There would be an announcement of victory, that the victory had been won. And that is precisely what Jesus is doing. He is making a declaration that Satan's time of greatest defeat, uh, of greatest victory, was in reality Satan's time of greatest defeat. And what appeared to be Jesus' time of greatest defeat was in reality Jesus' time of greatest victory. Peter is reminding these battered believers, you need not fear Satan or his dominion because you are victorious in Christ. And Christ has made a proclamation of conquest. What did he proclaim? Victory. Caruso. To whom did he proclaim it? Back to verse 19, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. To the spirits now in prison. Scholars are widely scattered in their identification of these fallen spirits. But, but in his second letter, Peter refers to a group of angels whose deeds were so wicked, God has confined them to Tartarus prison, a specially designated place within the abyss. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Jude makes reference to these fallen angels in his literary warning against apostasy. So who were these fallen spirits? Well, Genesis tells us in chapter 6, verse 4, the Nephilim were in the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. The dynamics of this passage are difficult to comprehend, but what we do discover from this passage is these fallen angels were deeply involved in propagating the wickedness of Noah's day, and God dealt with them swiftly and severely. They sought to sabotage God's redemptive plan, but through Jesus Christ, praise God, God's redemptive plan is indeed fulfilled. The Apostle Paul may give us insight into the proclamation made to these imprisoned spirits when he writes in Colossians chapter 2, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of the decrees against us and which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them through him. Paul paints a word picture very familiar to his readers. When a Roman general won a mighty military campaign, a triumphal procession, procession made its way through the streets. 
the conquering general would lead the procession, followed by his army singing songs of celebration. And bringing up the rear would be the defeated kings and warriors in bondage, subjected to public ridicule and being paraded through the streets in disgrace for everyone to see. Now let's make the connection. On the cross, Jesus waged war against Satan and his slimy horde. On the cross, a mighty victory was won. And then he led a parade through the streets of the abyss, proclaiming victory to the demonic hordes that sought to sabotage God's redemptive plan. Jesus Christ has won a mighty victory. And there is no place, not in heaven above or in hell beneath, where his victory has not been proclaimed. And then as, as evidence or proof of this proclamation, Peter goes on to provide two portraits of divine conquest. Pick it up in verse 20. Who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to them. Now, now follow and track this. Trying to follow the logic, Peter seems to be saying, I mentioned the fallen angels in Noah's day. That reminds me of the ark. The ark reminds me of the water. And the water obviously reminds me of baptism. So let's follow these two illustrations. The ark and baptism are two visual images of God's redemptive victory. Christ's conquest is evident in the ark. The ark is evidence of the incredible grace and mercy of God. Many of you recall the story in Genesis chapter 6. As God scanned the earth he had created and the people he had made in his image, he was broken by the wickedness and the waywardness in the world. His grief was so great, his sadness so severe, that God determined he would destroy the world he had created. And he would start from scratch. But in the eighth verse of the sixth chapter of Genesis, we find an incredible announcement. Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace. Noah's salvation would not be the result of Noah's goodness. Noah's salvation would be the result of God's amazing grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor. How would God carry out his benevolent act of grace? Genesis chapter 6 verse 14 records the instructions of the Lord. 
Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. Cover it inside and out with what? Pitch. A sticky, gooey tar. God said, Noah, not only do I want you to make an ark out of cypress, an indestructible wood. I want you to cover it inside and out with pitch. The pitch was meant to caulk the seams of the ship so it would not spring a leak. Now the significance of God's instruction to Noah is wrapped up in the word pitch. It is the Hebrew word kafar, and it is translated over 70 times in other parts of the Old Testament as atonement. Literally, God was telling Noah, put atonement on the inside and the outside of the ark. What was the atonement for? To keep the waters of God's judgment out. The water became an image of judgment, but the ark became an image of God's incredible, amazing grace. And what God did for Noah in the ark, God has done for every single one of us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is our ark. He is the representation of God's grace. We have defined grace previously, God's riches at Christ's expense. And so we are inside the ark of God's grace, which is covered inside and out with the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. His atoning blood uh, is the pitch which protects us from the day of judgment. The, the Apostle Paul understood this to be true. In fact, he wrote in Romans chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received, here it is, the atonement. So the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is the pitch which protects us from the day of judgment. And this image of salvation naturally led Peter to the image of baptism. Because not only is Christ's conquest evident in the ark, Christ's conquest is also evident in our baptism. Look at verse uh, 20, I believe it is. Let me get back to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Corresponding to that, that is parallel to that, inequality to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers 
had been subjected to him. Now look very carefully at verse 21. Peter makes it crystal clear that baptism does not save us. But baptism is visual evidence of the conquest of Jesus Christ. The act of baptism itself does not save anyone. Peter himself makes that crystal clear. Look at verse 21. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh. You could be baptized so many times, you become a permanent prune. <laughs> but that would not save you. You could spend so much time in the baptismal waters that the tadpoles know you by name. But that does not mean your name will be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. It is not the act of baptism itself that saves any of us. It is what baptism symbolizes that saves us. Namely, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and our personal identification with him. We are buried with him in baptism. He is our ark, and his blood is the atonement protecting us from the waters of God's judgment. Every time someone steps into a baptistry, into a pool, or into a river to identify with Jesus Christ, they give evidence of his incredible conquest on the cross. But his conquest did not end with this proclamation. In fact, this proclamation goes on to give us a glorious declaration that there are better things to come. Look at verse 22. Who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. After his death, burial, and resurrection, after his glorious conquest over sin and shame by shedding his own blood on the cross, we are reminded by Peter that Jesus resumed his rightful place at the right hand of the Father. And most of us would agree Jesus has earned his position at the right hand. He is worthy of glory and honor and praise for what he has accomplished for every single one of us on the cross. But what does that mean for those of us suffering for our faith? What does that mean for those of us that find ourselves in the midst of a torrential storm? How can it help us trace the rainbow through the rain? By reminding us that his conquest has secured our conquest. Peter will later tell us in the fifth chapter, the 10th verse, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to, here it is, his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Throughout this entire epistle, Peter contrasts the sufferings of this present life with the glories to be revealed to us in the next life. 
He, he's making a, a distinction between the reign of the here and the rainbow of the hereafter. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, we have an inheritance secured for us. And this inheritance is protected in heaven by the power of God. What does that mean for us? One day, the eastern sky will split wide open. And the one who secured our inheritance on the cross, the one who protects our inheritance in glory, will return in power and majesty to carry us with him to claim the inheritance he has secured for us. That is good news. That is great news. That is glorious news. The trials of this life are temporal, but our inheritance is eternal. Now, I confess, I, I do not know what you are going through. I do not know the storm crashing against the shore of your soul as you watch this session. But I do know that you can trace the rainbow through the rain by putting your faith, hope, and trust in the one who suffered for you on the cross. On that cross, Jesus won a mighty victory. And that victory can be your victory. The trials of life, they're only temporal. But God's grace, God's grace is eternal. We will see you next session. Once again, let me thank you for joining us on this journey through God's word. We know your time is precious. And so we consider it an incredible privilege that you've chosen to spend it with us. As I have shared before, we'd love to hear from you. Knowing how we have encouraged you encourages us. Recently, I had an individual say, I sit in front of my computer with my Bible, with my notebook, with my pen, ready to learn from God's word. If you're watching uh, on YouTube, you can leave a comments note at the bottom. We'd love to see those. Or you can reach us. Our email address is wordpowermm at gmx.com. Wordpowermm at gmx.com. If watching this ministry and learning from God's word has encouraged you, please tell others about us, whether they watch us on YouTube, find us on Instagram or on podcast. We'd love to know that we are being used by God to help people go deeper in their faith. God bless you. And again, thank you.